more announcements uh, for you. Um, yeah, the Easter brunch thing. We said that there was a sign-up thing. It was actually up front, not in the back. And so we're going to send that around. One of them is you want to eat, uh, sign up on that one. And the other one is you want to feed people, you can sign up on that one. And so just uh, there are pencils in your pews. You can send that and send that to the back. And that will be very helpful for the deacons and for the children's ministry uh, who are driving that. In your bulletin also there is uh, this little sheet uh, for those of you who would like to purchase a hymnal uh, in memory of, uh, of, of, of a family member perhaps or uh, something like that. Uh, those are starting to come into the office. When we get a, a batch of them, we will then place an order uh, and uh, we will uh, contact you regarding the, uh, the dedication plate that would be uh, uh, placed in there. After this service, I'm going to be meeting with readers and, or would-be readers. We're just going to practice with each other. Uh, there, there's an art to reading in front of a congregation. I know in terms of my own uh, calling to ministry, uh, an important step was being invited to be a reader at uh, the Anchor Presbyterian Church. I had ne it never occurred to me to be a reader. Uh, in worship. I had always seen other people stand up there uh, uh, reading and the pastor in that church had asked me to read and it was a very powerful experience for me to stand up here and to proclaim the word of God uh, to the people of God. It's, it, it's a privilege that's open and available to us all. We'll spend a little time after the service, those of you who would like to do that, just practicing that so that it feels natural and comfortable and you can do it in a way that uh, is very, uh, very helpful for, for the congregation. I feel like I'm forgetting something else. Peg, did I forget anything else? Yes. No? I did not kiss her dog yet. Okay. Karina always brings me her dog and I have to kiss her dog. Um, um, I did visit with Evelyn Brown yesterday. Uh, you know, she fell and she broke her hip. Um, she had a surgery. The surgery went very well. They're very pleased with it. Uh, she is in Luther Woods. Go see her, okay? Uh, if you've ever been in one of those places, it's very boring. And so you want your friends to come and see you. She is absolutely uh, receiving visitors. Um, her recovery is fine. She's tired, I think, by the whole experience. Um, and uh, her daughter, Jan, has been very attentive and is, is with her most of the time. Uh, Jan is staying in, uh, in Evelyn's uh, apartment and is able to help her. So I would encourage you to, to go visit with her this week. Normally she would be here. Uh, she always liked to come to the service on the first Sunday of the month to share in communion. Uh, she won't be able to be with us this morning, okay? Anything else? Jordan, am I forgetting anything else? Easter brunch. When is the Easter brunch? 9.30. Charlene. The prayer vigil. You were supposed to tell me. Okay, so the prayer vigil is happening. Tell me. Friday night. From 6 to midnight. And then Saturday morning. 6 a.m. to noon. So what happens is, is you come here to the sanctuary. It will be quiet. There may be a few people here also praying. We will have kind of prayer booklets. 
okay, with some scripture reading, some meditations, and you know, you just spend an hour here uh, in the quiet of the sanctuary. Uh, Sunday morning is a busy, bustling place at Huntington Valley. Uh, it's interesting to come here in the evening uh, uh, in the quiet, and so I would encourage you uh, to do that. That's Friday and Saturday, so Friday evening, so like Good Friday evening and Saturday morning. I'm hoping that's all of the business. Anything else? All right. Okay. Um, let's pray. Oh, I'm supposed to do my reading. Second reading. Normally Jordan does my reading, but this time because there are no Hebrew names, I'm going to do the reading. Our second reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to your daughter in Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and put on them their cloaks, and Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we uh, are here because you've um, told us to be here this morning. And we ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit so that as we listen to your word and as we gather at your table, we might do so in a manner that brings you honor and glory. I pray that you would open our ears and soften our hearts uh, to your word. I pray that we would believe uh, what it is that you've proclaimed when we gather at the sacrament. I pray that we would see uh, the body of Christ present uh, there in that meal. Lord God, you are a good God and you love us, a sinful people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm hoping all of the parents have given palms to their children. All right. They're allowed to poke other people with these. All right. This would not be a successful Palm Sunday if someone didn't get poked with a palm. Now, depending on uh, what sort of church you grew up in, you have different ideas about Palm Sunday and Holy Week and Easter. If you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, you know that we still are in Lent, that 40-day period of fasting that began on Ash Wednesday. 
For Catholics, Lent ends this coming Thursday. The Lenten fast is important to Catholics. St. Augustine said, our fast at any other time is voluntary, but during Lent we sin if we do not fast. St. Augustine. At HVPC, we mark the Thursday between Palm Sunday and Easter as Maundy Thursday. This word Maundy is an old English word that comes from the Latin mandatum, which means commandment. The Thursday before Easter was the evening of the Last Supper, and at the Last Supper, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, and he also washed the feet of the disciples, and he said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And so at our Monday Thursday service, we always celebrate the Lord's Supper, and sometimes we also have a foot washing. If you grew up in a black church, you are probably familiar with the tradition of Good Friday services featuring seven sermons by seven preachers with each preacher preaching on one of the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. Okay, that happens in the afternoon on Good Friday during the time when Jesus was dying. Other churches have evening tenebrae services on Holy Thursday or Good Friday. Scripture is read and the events leading up to the cross are retold and the sanctuary becomes progressively darker as the service proceeds. Different traditions, different ways of remembering these important events Of course, the passion of Christ, his suffering and his death is so rich with meaning that we never, even in 10,000 worship services, dig fully to the bottom of that treasure. The traditional lectionary readings and traditional hymns for Palm Sunday are curious because they strike two very different notes On the one hand, Palm Sunday is a joyful celebration with happy shouts of Hosanna as the loyal subjects of the arriving king line the pathway while he parades toward his enthronement. We see that theme in our opening and closing hymns today, All Glory, Laud, and Honor, and Hosanna, Loud Hosanna. On May 6th, the world will witness the coronation of King Charles. On that day, Charles and his wife Camilla will ride in a golden carriage and the procession will take them to Westminster Abbey where the crown will be placed on the king's head. And along the route, there will be crowds cheering for Charles. That's one of the moods of Palm Sunday. But at the same time, Palm Sunday is the entry into Holy Week, which marks the passion of Christ, his arrest, his trial, his abandonment by his friends, his torture, and his execution. There's something foreboding about Palm Sunday. Up to this time, Jesus did face various kinds of opposition, but he was able to go ahead with his ministry, preaching, healing, praying with people. But when he arrives in Jerusalem this time, He is there to face the terrible reality that he will be bodily, physically offered up as a sacrifice, 
a human sacrifice to atone for the sins of the church. On Palm Sunday, we have a glimpse of both the crown and the cross. Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. His name is above every name, and at his name every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth to acknowledge that Jesus is the King. But Jesus is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world by laying down his own life as an atonement for sins. It's hard to hold those two things together. Glory and power on the one side, humiliation and suffering on the other side. Jesus, the King of Kings, Jesus, the suffering servant. When Jesus entered Jerusalem amid shouts and cheers of the people, people in the crowd said, who is this? It's always a good question to ask, who is Jesus? Who is he to you? The Christian life is an imitation of the life of Christ Jesus not only dies for our sins, but Jesus also instructs us about how to live. Jesus tells his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. In explaining the kingdom of God to his disciples, Jesus said, the last will be first and the first will be last. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul quotes a hymn that would have been known at that time. Paul writes, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ. And then he begins the hymn, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant By being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the end of the hymn. But Paul goes on to say, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Apostle Paul is talking to a church he loves and he's giving them instructions about how they should live. And he does it by pointing to the character of Christ. Obviously, we Christians should imitate Christ. And central to the character of Christ is his humility. You can't answer the question, who is Jesus, without referring to his humility. (coughs) He refused to take advantage of the power that was at his fingertips. He was willing to be a servant. 
At the Last Supper, Jesus, the rabbi, the master, assumes the role of the lowliest servant, the man who washes the feet of the guests. And Jesus does this as a lesson to his students. He tells them, go and do likewise. This is the new commandment. The commandment is a general commandment. Jesus isn't actually commanding the disciples to go and wash feet. But we can think about how this general rule applies in a whole bunch of different situations. You don't have to be a rabbi to figure this out. You don't have to be seminary educated to know what go and do likewise means. We can do it right here, right now. Let's imagine ourselves in a variety of situations with one another here in the life of the church. Maybe we're just coming in to worship. Maybe we've brought our pot of chili to the chili cook-off. Maybe we're one of the musicians who are singing or playing on the chancel. Maybe you're a reader or a greeter. Maybe you're a mom who has dropped off your kid at the Sunday school classroom. Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher receiving that child. Maybe you're an elder or maybe you're a deacon. Maybe you're a member of a small group Bible study. Maybe you're a shut-in who's unable to go to church this morning. What does it mean in each of those circumstances to go and do likewise? What do we do when we live as a Christian with other Christians. Well, we wash their feet. We serve those people. We don't put ourselves first. We speak gently. We decline to exercise even the rights that we have. We humble ourselves with these people. Paul quotes this old hymn in Philippians chapter 2 because he's teaching Christians how to work out their salvation. And that, by the way, doesn't mean working to be saved. What it means is having been saved by grace through faith, we begin to live out, to work out, to make real the salvation that's been given to us as a free gift. How do we do it? Having been converted and made into Christians, how do we begin to live like Christians? Last week, we received Cheryl Waring as a member of this congregation, and one of the questions that we ask all new members is, do you now promise and resolve in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will Endeavor to live as becomes the follower of Christ. That question means, do you promise to try to live the way a Christian should live? How strange would it be if we were to say, yes, I'm a Christian, yes, the blood of Jesus has washed away my sins, but I intend to keep living the way that I always have, and you just better get used to it. That would be terrible. Of course, we are not saved by how we live, but we are saved so that we can live a new way. 
And Jesus himself modeled that way for us. Though he was powerful, he chose the role of a servant. Jesus said to his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Power and authority and leadership in the church looks different from power and authority and leadership in the world. The Christian model of leadership is Christ, and Christ came to serve, not to be served. Christ came to die for us. Now, you may have noticed the therefore in Paul's hymn. We read, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. The humiliation of Christ is connected to the exaltation of Christ. Now, of course, we cannot conceive of Jesus ever being disobedient to the Father, but if he had been, if he had refused the cross, then the name of Jesus would not be above every name. The path to the exaltation of the Son of God passes through his humiliation by coming to earth, by taking on the form of a human, by suffering and dying a criminal's death on behalf of the church. The same pattern holds for Christians. Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James, the brother of Jesus, writes, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. The apostle Peter writes, humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility is the way of the church. But we know the day will come when we, like Christ, will be exalted. The Apostle John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The promise here is that when Christ returns, we who are in Christ will be glorified as Jesus was glorified. This is our great hope. This is the pearl of great price that we have sold everything else to acquire. This is the first Sunday of the month, and that means that we will share the Lord's Supper this morning. On Thursday, we will again gather around uh, the Lord's table in the Lord's Supper, we remember the death of the sinless Jesus, which was a payment for the trespasses of guilty sinners. And when we come to this table, we own our own guilt. We admit that we have sinned and fallen short 
of the standard that God has set for us. We have sinned in thought, word, and deed. We are guilty of sins of omission, things that we should have done but we didn't do them, and sins of commission, things that we should not have done but we did anyway. Our guilty sin is what requires the death of Christ. Only guilty sinners need a Savior, and when we come to the Lord's Supper, we admit that we're guilty sinners. But I want us to make sure that we have clear in our minds the distinction between guilt and shame, because the difference is important. Psychologists distinguish between the feeling of guilt and the feeling of shame. Guilt is when we know that we have failed in some way, that we've missed the mark. When I feel guilty, I hold my life and my action up against some standard, some plumb line by which I judge myself. And when I see that I've not done what I should have done, I feel guilty. Guilt is actually a healthy emotion. It means that we have standards that we believe in and that we have the honesty to check ourselves against those standards. The person who never feels guilt, the person who never admits that he's wrong, that person is a monster. Either they have no standards of right or wrong or they completely fail to see who they are or if they do see who they are, they add sin to sin by covering up and lying about who they are. And keep in mind, you don't have to be religious to feel guilty. You can be a nice, well-meaning atheist who feels guilty about the carbon footprint of jetting off to Vail for a ski vacation. You can be a nicely, thoroughly woke non-believer who feels guilty about laughing at the jokes of Dave Chappelle. As Christians, we believe in God's law. And if we are healthy Christians, we check ourselves against that law. And if we are mature Christians, we might even have an accountability partner who tells us what he sees in our lives, giving us an external perspective on our compliance with God's law. Guilt can be healthy. Our self-examination against some standard we believe, there's nothing wrong with that. But shame is very different. Guilt is a judgment we pass on ourselves, but shame is a sense of being judged by someone else. Guilt is about what we did wrong. Shame is about who we are. Guilt says, I failed this time, but shame says, I'm a failure. We feel guilty when we judge ourselves. We feel shame when others judge us. Guilt says, you made a mistake. Shame says you are a mistake. We need to be careful about separating healthy guilt from morbid shame. A healthy Christian feels guilt about his sins. And God provides a means for dealing with that sin and that guilt. But a healthy Christian should not feel shame. 
Shame is a blanket condemnation that comes from the devil or from the world. Our peers in middle school are great at dishing up shame. Our parents can saddle us with shame thinking that they're teaching us about right and wrong. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt can improve us and refine us. Shame only crushes us and tells us that we are unlovable and unworthy. We who are parents and teachers and people in authority need to be very careful that we do not shame those that we've been charged to take care of. When we correct a child, we can point out the child's error and responsibility, but we can do that without shaming that child, without making that child feel unloved or worthless. Often people who feel deep shame in their childhood become perfectionists as adults. The people in their lives only loved them, only approved of them, only embraced them when they performed well, when they did right. And so at a deep level, they believe that they're unlovable unless they're perfect. And so they strive for perfection or they lie about their perfection both of which are terrible burdens to bear. But here's what we see at the cross of Christ. At the cross of Christ, we see that God has a law and he is so serious about that law that blood has to be shed where there is guilt. But God also, at the same time, loves us so much that he pours out his own blood to wash away our sin and guilt. God does not love us because we are perfect. He loves us before we are perfect. And then he makes the ultimate sacrifice so that we can become perfect. And yes, one day we will be perfect. Not today. God does not reject or shame guilty sinners. From the very beginning, think of Adam and Eve, think of Canaan who killed his brother. From the very beginning, God has shown mercy on sinners and it has provided them with a way of dealing with the sin and the guilt, a way that is healthy and honest and sane. When Adam and Eve hide, it's because of their guilt. Notice what God does. He pursues them. When Cain is sure that he will be killed by other people for the sin that he's committed, what does God do? God puts a mark on him to protect him from being killed by anyone else. God does not reject or shame the guilty sinner. But there are those who keep God at arm's length People who, like the Pharisees, imagine or pretend that they are without guilt. There are those who are proud, those who are unable to have a humble and contrite heart. And in doing so, they push God out of their lives. There is nothing Jesus can do for people like that. Jesus came to save those who are sick with sin, but if we are self-satisfied in our own righteousness, then Jesus actually has no part of our lives. 
In the cross of Christ, the righteousness and justice of God, which uphold a high and legitimate standard, meets the mercy and the kindness of God, which helps those who cannot help themselves. As Christians, we can feel a healthy guilt, but it does not destroy us or crush our spirits or leave us feeling unloved and unlovable. Healthy guilt is not the same as condemning shame. As Christians, we can feel an honest guilt and remorse for our failures and yet at the same time know that God loves us fully and deeply and that God provided for our redemption and salvation and for our eventual sanctification. So this morning we come to the Lord's table And as we do so, we own and we feel the weight of our responsibility for having caused the death of Christ. But we also enjoy and we delight in the embrace of our loving God who invites us to this victory feast. The bad news is we're all a bunch of sinners. And the good news is God loves us. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, for your word, we give you thanks. And for the testimony of those who've gone before us, we give you thanks. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were obedient to your Father and that you went into Jerusalem to face the terror of your own crucifixion so that we could be healed and saved. We thank you. Give us the faith to cling to you, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.